0: Okay, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Everyone okay? Good? Yes. Let's do this. Okay, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. I pray now that you would just use, use me, Lord, use the words of my mouth as we look at the Word of God and as we talk about this subject this morning. In Jesus' name and for his sake, we pray. So we are doing a slightly different study than maybe I would usually do this morning. It's more of a historical slash Bible study. And it's simply called Israel at 70, Lessons for the Church. I'll start just by reading to you a verse from the book of Isaiah, chapter 66, verse 8, where it says, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day, and can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Obviously, we're approaching May 14th, which will be the 70th anniversary of the establishment of the modern state of Israel. Um, now, we're not so much talking about Israel in prophecy this morning, um, and we're not so much talking about issues related to the current political situation, but we um, we were more just going to be looking at some stories involved with the history. For those of you that don't know, I'm doing my doctorate in history and theology at the moment, and Israel and the church is the subject that I'm studying, so these things are all very fresh in my mind. Uh, for those of us who were at the Teach the Word conference yesterday, we had a question on Zionism and anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, which we dealt with and I'm not really going to be covering those issues today. So I'm going to need you to kind of just step back from all the stuff you may or may not have heard. And we're going to look at this afresh this morning and try and lay a biblical foundation for this topic before we move into it. So Friday, May 14th, 1948. This was the, the birth date of the modern state of Israel. The Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, he stood up and he read the Declaration of Independence of the New State in Tel Aviv. The opening statement of this declaration is significant. It mentions both Jewish identity and Jewish attachment to the land. Let me read to you a segment from it. It says, The land of Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people, and here their spiritual, religious, and national identity was formed. And here they achieved independence and created a culture of national and universal significance. And it says, Here they wrote and gave the Bible to the world. So it mentions the land. The land of Israel is unique unique. In many ways. It's unique spiritually, it's unique theologically, and it's also unique politically. Let me read to you Deuteronomy chapter eleven, verse eleven to twelve. Moses says, But the land or God says to Moses, But the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, drinks, water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares, and the eyes of the Lord your God are always on it, from the beginning even to the end of the year. Now, because of these things, this uniqueness to the, to the land of Israel is probably why it remains one of the most contentious issues in any discussion that you will have concerning Israel today. It's often this issue of the land that will lead to impassioned disputes, not only between those living in the land, but those in the church and those all around the world. I'm sure if you've ever tried to speak about this issue, you've encountered that. If you've ever watched the news, you've encountered that. There's this theologian called Fred Wright. He says this... As soon as the land of Israel is mentioned, an emotive force is released. And there are few people, especially in the Christian church, who hold a neutral view. And this is very true. I know this to be true myself, and I'm sure you probably would have experienced this. People get very emotive on this issue very, very quickly. And it's almost unusual why this issue creates such controversy in the world. But the real reason is if you want to understand why this is, you have to have a biblical foundation because this is God's world. He is the ultimate reality and his word is the ultimate truth. I'm going to lay a small biblical foundation and then we will move on from that and, and we'll look at some, some historical elements. The land of Israel is the staging ground for some of the greatest events in biblical history. It was this land that God promised to Abraham, Abraham and Sarah. It was to this land that Joshua led the children of Israel. We've been studying that yeah, in Wednesday nights. It was here that King Solomon and King David reigned. And it was in this land that the great Jewish temples were constructed and it was in this land that was pretty much the staging ground for many of the events we read about in the Old Testament. Now the subject of Israel, as contentious as it may be, is still of extreme interest and significance to many people today, many Christians included in that. And this should not really be a surprise to us. The term Israel is mentioned over 2,000 times in the Old Testament. It's mentioned 70 times in the New Testament. The biblical phrase, the God of Israel, occurs over 200 times. The word Zion, over 160 times. Zion was just the ancient name for Jerusalem. And Jerusalem itself occurs 764 times. This is why it's a unique issue, because it is intricately tied up with the word of God. And it's not really that people are opposing. It's the word of God, ultimately, which is where the battleground is. I've taught on that issue many times. Many Christians recognise they worship a Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. Was Jewish, Yeshua Hamashiach. That was his name. They study a Jewish Bible, written predominantly by Jewish apostles, and many Christians obviously interpret the Apostle Paul's words in Romans eleven seventeen to say that we are grafted in to a Jewish root. That is the roots of the Christian faith. This is why it's of extreme importance and significance to us. Now, the question would often come up from people: "That's all true." But that's old Israel. That's biblical Israel. And what we see today is really nothing more than a colonial expedition of Zionist expansion in the land. These are the sorts of things. You cannot equate biblical Israel with what we see today. I understand some of the motives for these sorts of things. However... When we understand the full scope of the biblical narrative, we need to be very careful in jumping to such conclusions and falling for these sorts of revisionist histories. But, like I say, I'm not really teaching on Israel in prophecy today. I'm not even looking to refute those sorts of challenges or arguments. But I do want to set out a biblical context for how we understand these issues so that you can see why it's even appropriate to talk about this in a Sunday morning sermon. So let me set the context. Where do we get this information from? Where do we get these views that I'm talking about from? We certainly don't get it from modern day historians um, and quite frankly the answer I just read in the Declaration of Independence where it says here they wrote and gave the Bible to the world. That is really where we get it from, the Bible, the word of God. Israel is unique in world history but the reason why it's unique is because God outlines that history in his word. That's the reason why because God outlines that history in his word from its conception to its consummation and our story is tied up intricately with that story go back to genesis chapter 12 the beginning of the story the abrahamic covenant the beginning of it go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house this is god speaking to abraham to the land which i will show you i will make you a great nation and i will bless you and in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed obviously referring to this that Jewish Messiah who would come, who would offer salvation to the entire world. Carry on reading up to Genesis 17. This is where he brought Abraham to a place called Hebron. Very contentious state, the area today in Israel, Hebron. And this is where he fully ratified the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 17. He said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. The story goes on. This was really the establishment of the first Jewish community 4,000 years ago in Hebron. We then trace Jewish history after that through Isaac, through Jacob, and through the descendants of Jacob, the 12 tribes. You read about that. Pretty much what the, the whole Old Testament is about. Their years in Egypt of slavery in Egypt are detailed in the Bible, followed by the fact that they would be brought from slavery back into the land, which we see fulfilled in the Bible. The Passover, the book of Exodus. These, the Passover is still celebrated today. It's celebrating a historical event that happened all those years ago. We later find out that there would be another predicted dispersion from the land. This time it would be under the auspices of King Nebuchadnezzar into the Babylonian captivity. We also know that from the Bible that Babylonian captivity was only to last 70 years and then we would see them back in the land. Obviously, we know the history of that too. All predicted, all fulfilled from the Bible. Then we come to the time of Christ. At this time, the Roman Empire was in charge of this little patch of land in the Roman Empire. It was not significant or important to them, really. It served as a buffer zone between two bigger warring empires, the Roman Empire at that time. But it was the land of Israel. It was to this little patch of land that Jesus Christ came. He lived, he died, he buried, and he rose again in that land. And at that time, we know the story. The Jewish people, on large, rejected the message of their Messiah. And we know from this the Lord promised that there would be great suffering, persecution, and worldwide dispersion if they forsook him. Book of Deuteronomy 28. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And among those nations you shall find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes and despair of soul. So your life shall hang in doubt before you and you will be in dread day and night and you shall have no assurance of your life. And if you know anything about Jewish history during the years from 70 AD when they were dispersed out of their land, if you remember your history, Jesus was crucified 33 AD. There was a 40-year period as the church was kind of getting started, almost like a grace period for the Jewish people to accept their Messiah. But they nationally rejected him and the temple and the city was destroyed and the Jewish people were scattered all over the earth. And God promises when this happens they would not really find too much safety around the earth. If you know Jewish history, there's no other group of people in this world that have had the history that they have. They've been banned from almost every nation that they've gone into, persecuted beyond belief. We see these sorts of things. I think another time I have been, I've done a list of you from that history, it's, 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 it's unbelievable. But it's not unbelievable because God predicted it. He knew this would happen. Now, this dispersion lasted 2,000 years. Now, the fact that the Jewish people survived is an anomaly in world history. That does not happen. That a small nation is taken out of its land, dispersed among the entire worlds. Because usually they, you just assimilate into the nations that you go to. But the Jewish people maintained a separate identity. This, their survival in itself is often called miraculous, but what is more miraculous is their return to the land. Some people call it a miracle, some people call it a catastrophe, I know that. But I'm not talking about that now, I'm talking about what does the Bible say. Ezekiel 36, 27. For I will take you from among the nations, I will gather you from all the lands and I will bring you back into your own land. Ezekiel 37:21. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them back into their own land. These two verses from Ezekiel are part of a very famous prophecy called the the Valley of Dry Bones, the Vision of the Dry Bones. It's a long prophecy, I won't read it to you now, but in short, you may be familiar with it, there's a vision that the prophet Ezekiel has given where the children of Israel are pictured as dead skeletons and they they are slowly coming up out of the grave and they're slowly given meat and sinews and flesh and eventually he breathes his life into them and it's this picture that he's giving of the regathering and the reestablishing of the nation of Israel and obviously eventually the salvation of Israel as he breathes new new life into them. This is the famous Valley of Dry Bones. It's a very crucial prophecy. Ezekiel is a major prophet for a reason. It contains a lot of these issues. Now, if you go to Israel today, and you go to the Israeli Knesset, the Parliament building, in front of that building there is a huge, like, six-foot menorah. A menorah is a candelabra like they used to have in the temples in the old days. It was designed by a British sculptor called Benno Alclan, a Jewish, uh, Jewish uh, guy who escaped from Germany and before, just before the war and got into Britain. It was presented to the Knesset as a gift of, from the British Parliament in 1956, so eight years after the establishment on, of Israeli independence. Now, what's unusual or, or very clever about this sculpture is it's all made of bronze, that, and on the front panels of it, it has like panels on every arm. And kind of, if you see, imagine a menorah with these big arms, it has different pictures of, depicting different events and history and things to do with the history of. Israel. And on the centre branch, so the, the centre branch, uh, the artist put the things that he considered most central to biblical history, or Jewish history. So at the top you'll see a figure of a man standing like this, with two people by his sides. This was Moses, obviously you remember his war with the Amalekites, where he's up on the hill and they have to, he has to keep his hands high and Israel wins and that's the, one of the pictures there. Underneath that you'll have a picture of the Ten Commandments. Underneath that there's a picture of Ruth and Rachel. And this was put there to um, highlight the very important place that women have played in Jewish history. And then underneath that, you'll find a rather gruesome display of a load of skeletons coming out of the grave. And this is obviously, and the prophet Ezekiel standing above them. And this is obviously Ezekiel 37 referencing the vision of the valley of dry bones and the reunification, the resurrection of the nation of Israel. If you come to Israel with us next year, we'll show you this. You see, the fact that a nation could be completely destroyed as an organised entity by invading armies, its people slaughtered and scattered from one end of the world to the other, and its land occupied and ruled by foreigners for over 1,900 years, yet still survive as a distinct nationality, and then finally regain its ancient homeland and be recognised as a viable nation once again, is impossible. It is an absolute anomaly in world history. You do not find other ancient nations, Babylon, the the Assyria, all these different things, they're, they're gone. It does not happen. But what is really amazing about this is that it was all predicted in the word of God many centuries beforehand. And this is one of our first lessons for the church as we look at the story of Israel. God's word does not fail. And his promises are true. We've seen this, if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we've had this little phrase come up a lot. And all the promises that God made came to pass. Or not one, not one word of all the promises that God made failed. And that is a lesson for us today. It may go against our sensibilities in some areas. But the fact of the matter is, he is God and we are not. And this, really, that grand narrative, wherever we place, wherever we are in the story of God's history, this is why we can still look today and glean some lessons from the church, and it's a very important issue, and it's one that is still being played out today. So that's the narrative of Israel. Now, there's much more that could be said on the future of Israel, but we're not really, like I said, we're not doing that this morning. So let's go back to 1948, back to that Declaration of, In- of Independence. Uh, around this time, the British forces pulled out of the Middle East of what's called the Mandate Period, If you remember, at the end of the war, it was actually, Palestine, as they called it, was part of the Ottoman Empire at this time, which was the last Islamic Caliphate, the Ottoman Caliphate, um, over this whole region. Obviously, they, they lost the war at that time, so the whole area was split up into what they called different mandates. You had the French Mandate up the north with Syria. You had the British Mandate, which controlled Jordan and Palestine and all these areas, but Obviously they were all, it was becoming a very difficult situation to manage and they wanted to hand it over to the United Nations so the, the British mandate was due to come to an end on 1948 and this is when the, the, the declaration of the independence of Israel was made. However, in the kind of time preceding that there was a huge debate that was raging behind the scenes amongst the Jewish leaders. And it concerned a particular phrase in the Declaration of Independence. And the argument was, should the name of God be included in the official text? Because obviously, remember, Israel, I mean, it's a secular state. It's not a, it's not, you know, it's not a religious state in that sense. But there's a big, you know, there was a lot of religious Jews at the time who obviously wanted God's name in the Declaration. But there was huge amounts of obviously kind of hard left secular Jews at that time, a particular party... That They absolutely did not want the name of God mentioned in that at all. They rejected anything to do with God. So they, there was, they were really a loggerheads. There was no way that they could come to a conclusion until there was like a mediating party. It was Ben-Gurion and his people. They reached a compromise. And what they decided to do is instead of using any sort of obvious designation like Lord or Adonai or God, the phrase that was agreed upon was the Rock of Israel. The rock of Israel. You see, this was cryptic enough to placate the non religious, yet it was also significant enough to pacify the religious party. A kind of clever piece of political maneuvering. So the end of the declaration says this placing our trust in the rock of Israel. We affix our signatures to this proclamation at this session of the Provincial Council of States on the soil of the Holy Land in the city of Tel Aviv on the Sabbath Eve, the fifth day of Iyar, 5708, May 14th, 1948, in our calendar. Now you see, although this term was chosen to be an ambiguous alternative to the phrase Lord, when we understand how this term is used multiple times in the Bible for God, it turns out to actually be a very fitting phrase for such a document. Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 to 4. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteousness and upright is he. The rock, his work is perfect, because he is perfect. A.W. Pink, he said this, God cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. I love that quote. Just think, he cannot change for the better because he is already perfect. And being perfect, that means he cannot ever change for the worse, because he is perfect. That is the rock of Israel described there in this passage. His ways are just, i.e., the way his work is accomplished. He is a God of faithfulness. He is righteous and upright. Such are the qualities of the great God of Israel. You see, no wonder it says that we are to ascribe greatness to the God of Israel. Because there is no one else who is truly perfect. Obviously Jesus, but we'll get to that. But this is the rock. This is the God of Israel. You see, one of the most... And this is a real, a real lesson for us. Because as you know, Tozer was always fond of saying... The most important thing in the world is what comes into your mind when you hear the word "God, because we live in a culture where God can mean many different things in the context of the Middle East. The fight is between whether it 's Allah or Yahweh, really, but to us, God is the rock. this is one of his terms, and the rock is used so many times in the old testament it 's obviously a metaphor, of course, but It's always related to different qualities and different attributes of the great God of Israel. And one of the most fundamental things that we can do as Christians is to gain a more intimate knowledge of the Holy One, of Israel. Let me read to you from Tozer again. It's a long quote, but it's a powerful one. He starts off by quoting Isaiah 40, verse 12, and he says, "'Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, "'measured heaven with the span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure?' Weighed the mountains in scales and hills in the balance. We must be concerned with the person and character of God, not just the promises. Through the promises, we learn what God has willed to us. We learn what we may claim as our heritage. We learn how we should pray. But faith itself must rest solely on the character of God. Is this difficult to see? Why are we not stressing this in our evangelical circles? Why are we afraid to declare that people in our churches must come to know God himself? Why do we not tell them that they must get beyond the point of making God a lifeboat for their rescue or a ladder to get them out of a burning building? How can we help our people get over the idea that God exists just to help them run their businesses or fly their aeroplanes? God is not a railway porter who carries your suitcase and serves you. God is God. He made heaven and earth... He holds the world in his hand. He measures the dust of the earth in the balance. He spreads the sky out like a mantle. He is the great God Almighty. He is not your servant. He is your father. You are his child. He sits in the heaven and you are on earth. That is the rock of Israel that we're talking about here, who is in charge of everything that I've gone through with you this morning. There's no ambiguity to that term. That's why I find it funny that it was placed on there as an ambiguous term to limit recognition of God. Even more explicit use of the term rock is found in Psalm 18, a very famous psalm, written by King David after the Lord delivered him from the hand of King Saul. Psalm 18, verses 1 to 3, we read this. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock. In whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. You see, listen to all these remarkable descriptions of God that we have just in these three verses. And it's interesting to note that in many ways, David probably knew these things by faith in some ways, because in many ways we read a lot about the character of God. But sometimes it takes personal experience before we really understand them. We we know something by experience. Oftentimes the word for knowing God is actually a word that has connotations that means know by experience. You see, that's why in the heading of Psalm 18, I think it's important that it says that this psalm was written after the Lord delivered him from the hand of Saul. You remember the story, he's being chased kind of relentlessly around the, the Judean wilderness by Saul who wants to take his life. And obviously, you know, he's hiding in caves and doing all these sorts of things. But then, after this whole episode, he can just say that the Lord, my rock, is my fortress, my stronghold, my refuge, my shield. And he goes on and on. And this is important for us. Never discount the fact that God can use times of trial in your life. He did this with David. This is what the psalm is all about. These times of trial... Where David was, you remember some of the Psalms, he's crying out for help in the, in the cave. You know, people are pursuing him. He's at the end of his tether, he's got a small, small army with him, and he's crying out to God. But when you read this Psalm, it was that very time in those caves where he came to this knowledge and experience of these attributes of God. God will use these times and no time is wasted. It may be these very times that God is teaching you to understand the words of Scripture in a new and living way. The Lord is David's rock, his fortress, and his deliverer. Now, this speaks to us of the solid and strong foundation the rock is often used in that that sentence. Obviously, rocks, you know, a building would always have a rock or a cornerstone, as they call it in many ways. That is the foundation of the building. It's strong and it's secure. The metaphor is very simple in that element. He is the one who provides protection for David, a fortress, a deliverer. He keeps him from harm as he was in running from place to place. It also says he is a refuge, a place of safety and rest from the enemy. This reminds me of Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord, the rock, is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. He's a refuge. David goes on to describe the rock as a shield. This is something obviously that is carried into uh, into the soldier by the soldier into battle. This calls to remembrance David's battle with the Philistine Goliath. You remember this story? He's given Saul the king of Israel at that time. He's given Saul, him Saul's armor. He puts it on. It's all too big, and he doesn't. You know, he's just like, nope, I'm not having this. He refused to wear Saul's armor because it was not tested on him, and he's he basically <laughs> he went into battle with the only true, tried, and tested, perfect shield that David knew of. And you remember that phrase, 1 Samuel seventeen forty-five. He comes to Goliath, and what does he say? He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. That is the true, tried, and tested shield that David had there. Yes, I know he had five stones at that time, but he came in the name of the God of Israel. This is the rock of Israel. It also says in this verse in Psalm 18 that the, the rock of Israel is said to be a horn of salvation. A horn of salvation. Now this, I love this little phrase. It's so significant to us as Christians. The rock of Israel is the horn of salvation. Now if you're very familiar with the New Testaments you might recognise that phrase. We're going to be starting Luke. Are we starting Luke? Is that our next book? Yes. Yeah. So in Luke chapter 1 this phrase will come up. You remember the parents of John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And there's this fight in the New Testament. What shall we name him? On want to name him Zechariah after his father. We want to name him, but they're told to name him John. And Zechariah is made mute at this time. But then when he's born, and he says he's going to be named John and he speaks again. And then he gives a prophecy. Part of that prophecy says this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us. And accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Now, this is very significant because he's applying that same phrase, the horn of salvation, that we've just read in Psalm 18 was a, was a phrase that was applied to the God of Israel, the rock. He is the horn of salvation. You see, what is true of the God of Israel is true of the Messiah of Israel. You remember the phrase in 1 Corinthians 10.4? What does it say? The rock was Christ. This is Paul referring to the the children of Israel being followed by a rock. He's making reference to a a Jewish Talmudic story. But he makes the application that the rock of Israel is Christ. And that's why we see Zechariah promising that he has raised up a horn of salvation. You see, Jesus is the rock of Israel. He is the one who is perfect, faithful and just in all his ways and he continues to offer protection, refuge, deliverance and salvation to all those who call upon him today. You see, the same God who promised Israel in Psalm 121 that he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep is also the one who promised the church in Hebrews 13 that I will never leave you, desert you and I will never forsake you. It's the same God. It's the rock of Israel. You see, in light of all these things, how fitting it is that the term Rock of Israel, originally chosen to obscure any direct reference to God, actually ends up pointing to the Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel. And that will be very significant at some point in Israel's future. How providential that this reference is now forever enshrined in the founding document of the modern state of Israel. cannot erase it now. It's there on the document. That's really one of the main lessons that I just love that story about how that term was chosen and what it means for us. Let's move on, looking at some of the history that happened shortly after this. You may know that within hours of signing that document, the modern state was attacked um, by the armies of Egypt, Lebanon, Iraq, Syria and Transjordan. Uh, The War of Independence, it's called, it lasted about well over a year, Um, Israel was in the end victorious, but it was a high cost. Over 6,000 lives were lost. Israel faced similar attacks. 1956, you had the Sinai, the Suez War, which was all about Egypt and the Suez Canal and shutting off the canal, the shipping routes and these sorts of things. Uh, In 1967, you had the uh, Six-Day War, which was a preemptive war by Israel. 1973, and this is the one I want to focus on a bit now, this is known as the Yom Kippur War. Yom Kippur, obviously, you know about that from the Old Testament. It's the Day of Atonement, it's the holiest high holiday in the Jewish period. Um, At this time in Israel, every soldier is sent to the house, everyone celebrates Yom Kippur, everything kind of just shuts down for Yom Kippur, the nation comes to a standstill almost. It was on Yom Kippur in 1973 that Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack against the nation as obviously they were celebrating the Day of Atonement. This caught the uh, the IDF, the the Defence Forces, unprepared and they were woefully outnumbered again. Nonetheless, they managed to push back the invading armies. And again, this victory came at a high cost. Over 3,000 soldiers died just in three weeks of fighting. Now, there were rumours of war before 73 invasion, but after the victory of 67, people had become so confident in the IDF's abilities that they didn't really think any of the surrounding nations would try it again, having been defeated three or four times since then they were very confident in their own ability at this time and also at this time after the 67 war they built a line israel built a line of defenses along the coast of the Sui canal in the sinai peninsula to make sure that the same thing couldn't happen again that gave rise to the 56 war they called it the bar lev line named after one of the generals who came up with it and this was to protect from an egyptian invasion The Bar Lev line is basically, it was a $300 million wall built of sand and concrete. It was 80 feet high and it was 100 miles long. And it was considered to be a symbol of military perfection. The people were very proud of it. And it was expected to be completely adequate to keep the invading armies away. So they were not really worried about that border anymore. However, it took Anwar Sadat, Egyptian president and his forces, just two hours To penetrate through that wall on the Yom Kippur War. You see, that thing that they had placed their faith in, when they needed it most, it was absolutely useless. They trusted in their own abilities and their own understanding. It was actually an Egyptian uh, water engineer who came up with the way to get through that. I forget his name now, but he he decided, you know, soldiers obviously think, let's blow it up, let's get tanks, we'll go through it. An Egyptian water engineer came up and he said, "No, no, this has got sand in it. We need. We let me get. Let's get all the fire trucks and we'll hose the. Bo- we'll, we'll just wash it away, basically." And so they actually just, with water, they they wash this whole wall away. It was it's ingenious, and he's celebrated as an absolute hero in Egypt today for that for that. Um, and it was you know, as far as militarily, as far as it goes, it was it was a great idea. But for Israel at this time, the whole, the defences were brought down within two hours. I like this story in one sense because it brings to mind Deuteronomy 28:52. 52. it's not the first time this has happened in Israeli history. In Deuteronomy 28, you read about the curses that will come upon the children of Israel should they disobey the Lord. And one of them says this, that they will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. You see, history repeats itself we will need to learn that lesson. Jeremiah the prophet, he warned of the exile that would come to the disobedient Israelites. In Jeremiah 7 verses 5 to 7 he says this, "Cursed is the one is the is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him." And you'll find this theme repeated all throughout the Bible. He tells the kings of Israel, "You don't trust in horses. You don't trust in chariots. You don't trust in the numbers of the army that you have. You trust in Me." And that was the continued lesson. And every time we see one of the Israelites not trusting in God, they're trusting. And many times they actually trusted in Egypt, didn't they? When they were going to be attacked by the by other nations, sometimes they went down to Egypt to seek help. And he says, "Don't go to Egypt. We need to learn that lesson of David again." He says, that the Lord says I am the one who goes before you who fights your battles for you I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts this, this, is, this is the same lesson that we have and we can see how this applies and obviously we're not talking about a national in a military sense but the same lesson and the same commands are found all through the, like, the book of Psalms that are more personal in these sorts of elements we don't trust in our own strength but we do don't we let's be honest a lot of the time we trust in our own abilities, our own strength, our own possessions, our own fortifications, our own churches, our own church buildings, the numbers of things that we have. It's very easy to be moving along in life and before you know it you are in fact trusting in something else and you haven't given attention or glory to the, to, to the God, the rock of Israel. You see the man who trusts in the Lord, what does it say, that famous verse in the Psalms, the one who trusts in the Lord will be like a tree firmly planted. That's what we're after, a tree firmly planted. That's what he's it's like to trust in the Lord you'll be eternally secure and you see when you see the armies on the hills metaphorically speaking when things are tough in your present situation it's easy to look for solutions in your own head, in your own mind you know, logical solutions many, many times what is the best way out of this what can I think of to come up with I need to deal with this situation and whilst I don't believe in being passive and just waiting for the Lord to do things we've got to find the line that we've got to trust in the Lord God of Israel, our God, in our Messiah, Jesus Christ. It is at these times, when those armies are on the hills, that is the time you need to trust in the Lord God of Israel because he is our shield, our refuge, and our deliverer. Has been then, and he is now, and he will always be there. He ever lived to make intercession for us. You see, in another way, a lot of us erect walls in our lives. Okay, I'm sure you will know this feeling. Sometimes we put walls up around certain areas of our hearts actually to keep God out. Or sometimes we might, God might see that we have too much trust in something in our lives and many times he will actually break that wall down. So the very situation that we are in which may seem like a mess as the wall is crumbling down and, and everything is crashing down around us might actually be the very thing that God is using to put your trust back into him and to turn your eyes and fix them back onto Jesus Christ. Because all of us have areas in our hearts that are not fully submitted to the Lord. Sometimes they rear their head. Sometimes we put a wall around them and push them right back down. But they'll come back again. You all know this. I can see you do. I know you do. We all know this in our own lives. But at some point, if we're following the Lord, he will smash those walls down. And you will place... The only thing to do is to cling to the God of Israel. The righteous run into it and are safe. He is our refuge. Now during this war, the Yom Kippur War, after the Great Wall fell and many stunning defeats in battle, against incredible odds, the Israeli army came to realise that they only had one true line of defence, and that was God. You see, after the Independence War, there was a slogan that was often thrown around, all glory to the IDF. Okay, after the war of Yom Kippur, it was all glory to God that was thrown around in the, in the army barracks. And it's one of these things, you can read many of the eyewitness accounts of things that happened in the Yom Kippur war. And they call it the miracle of Yom Kippur, because there are so many unusual events that cannot be explained militarily that happened. Um, a lot of them up on the Syrian border... we'll talk about that in a minute and just weird things you know like soldiers having to escape through minefields and not knowing where to go and then winds coming across and blowing away the sand so they could see mines, one tank being able to to confuse 160 enemy tanks under cover of night and there's just hundreds of these things. There's one event that no one can explain and all the documents for this are classified on the Syrian side but there was one point up in the north in the Golan Heights where they were completely outnumbered. I think there was 1,400 Syrian tanks against 160 tanks. Ten to one, almost, pretty much. Um, Unheard of. One of the largest tank battles in history. And there was one point where the Syrian forces were so close that they were very near to just... They could have have advanced and come down and and destroyed the defences there. But for some reason, they just stopped. And they stopped for a, a long time, enough that reinforcements were able to come... And some of the stories associated with why they were stopping, from the Israeli side, they, they tell of like things happening in the sky, hands stopping armies. From, and from the Syrian side, you can read many reports, they're, only, they're not like original, like I say, all the military documents are classified, but they say of seeing signs in the sky that told them not to attack. And it's one of these weird things. No one really knows the truth of it because no one wants to talk about it because it's embarrassing to one side and it seems weird to the other side. That's why it's all classified. But the fact of the matter is, no one knows why the Syrian army stopped at that time and when they could have d- f- finished what they were doing. That, that was, um, yeah, that was called, the, the place where that happened was called the Valley of Tears. And it was pretty much one of the largest tank battles uh, ever in history, actually. Um, You can go up to the Golan Heights today and there are still wrecked tanks all over the place. They're left there as kind of a a memory of what happened on that day. Now, during this war, it was the Israeli Prime Minister at the time was a woman named Golda Meir, And she's known as the grandmother of Israel. Um, And she's considered to almost be like an Esther-type figure in Jewish history. Um, And as a kind of aside... I won't get any more political than this, but you may remember, just recently we've seen, we've seen everyone sort of, not celebrating, but making a big deal of the fact that, that Saudi Arabia has recently agreed to allow women to drive cars, you know, and they're very proud of themselves, you know, like, you've got to let them drive now, haven't we, the world is moving on, um, you know, I, I laugh because it's pathetic, um, but what's more pathetic is the way that the world is kind of yeah, no, that's good, that's a good sign of positive improvement. Okay, It's a pathetic sign of positive improvement. Okay, um, Let's be honest, it is, isn't it? But the reason why no one's willing to say that is because the reason why women are not allowed to drive cars is attached to the religion of Wahhab Islam, that is Saudi Arabia, and no one's willing to speak against that. But Israel has been dealing with that <laughs> since 600 AD. They, they know a lot about that. And at this time, they had a woman president. And for me, that tells you a lot about what you need to know of certain things going on in that region. Golda was one of the original signatories of the Declaration in 1948, before she became Prime Minister. Now, after the the War of Independence, just before and after... Um, obviously, the fledged East State of Israel had only just kind of come into existence. It was made up of mainly Holocaust survivors at this time. They had really no official army. They, they had, there was British trade embargoes, so they couldn't buy weapons. Um, they were outnumbered by six, you know, five or six different nations, and they were basically on the verge of being destroyed at that time, and that was the, the motivation for this war. The, uh, the Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, wanted to go. They knew they needed money, obviously, to buy supplies for soldiers. And he wanted to go to America, to the, the Jewish community there, which was one of the wealthiest Jewish communities, and raise money. But Golda Meir said to him, no, you're not going. I'll go. You're needed here for your people. So two days after arriving in New York, she came with no luggage, only the clothes that she had on her back, and she had $10 in her pocketbook. She managed to obtain permission to speak to one of the, the, the largest gathering of Jewish leaders at the time. And I'll read to you a record of a little bit of how this speech is observed by some people. It says, At the sight of her simple, austere figure moving towards the speaker's stand, someone in the crowd murmured she looks like a woman of the Bible. Then, without a text, this messenger from Jerusalem began to speak. And she said, In a few months, she told, told her audience, A Jewish state will exist in Palestine, and we shall fight for its birth. That is natural. We shall pay for it with our blood. That is normal. The best among us will fall. That is certain. But what is equally certain is that our morale will not waver, no matter how numerous our invaders may be. Yet she warned that those invaders will come with cannon and armor. Against those weapons, sooner or later, our courage will have no meaning, for we will have ceased to exist. And she said, my friends, in making her plea, we live in a very brief present And when I tell you we need this money immediately, it does not mean next month or in two months, it means now. And the woman who arrived in the United States one bitter January night with no winter coat and $10 would leave with $50 million. And waiting at Lida Airport for her as she returned was David Ben-Gurion, the man who wanted to go in her place, the one who appreciated no better the magnitude of her her achievement. And as she came to him, he said this to her, the day when history is written, he solemnly told her, it will be recorded that it was thanks to a Jewish woman that the state was born. <laughs> That's why, one of the reasons why it's so hated. And this is why she's known as an Esther figure, because most people say there's no one else who could have done that at that time. Remember what it says in the book of Esther, she was put into the Persian court for such a time as this. And many people think that's, that's true of that situation there. Now we know that is true. God is in control of history and he uses just sometimes very unusual things that we wouldn't expect, unusual people that we wouldn't necessarily choose for jobs to do these things to, to have his purpose, even if they do not know that they're being used. It makes me think of Cyrus, king of Persia, when he, was, gave permission, he was, you know, took over and gave the Jews permission to go back. But for us as individuals, Ephesians 2.8, it says that we are his workmanship, you know, we are part of the plan. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. God prepared beforehand. You see, as Christians, we do have a holy calling. We do have a mission. Our whole life is a mission. You know, once you are born again, you are a missionary, wherever you are. You say, it's not just some. It's not just me. It's not just the preacher or the pastor or the evangelist. It's everybody. And this verse here proves that. If you are in the body of Christ, God has things for you to do. He has those moments where you are placed where you are for such a time as this. And you might be in a situation that you may not necessarily like, like David was in the cave. All these sorts of things. But could it be that God has something for you to do there? And the only way we'll know is by seeking and trusting in the rock of Israel. Now, back to 1973... Golden Mare, against the advice of her generals, she wanted to go up to the, the Valley of Tears where this tank battle took place and see, and see the troops up there. And it was Sukkot, the, first, the Feast of Tabernacles, when she went up. And this is interesting because the Feast of Tabernacles, prophetically in the Bible, obviously speaks of the Millennial Kingdom, that time when there will be peace in the land and the world, actually, of Israel. That's what, it, that's what it looks forward to. And you know, if you know anything about the festival, the, they make these little sukkahs, these huts, these temporary dwellings, which are supposed to represent the temporary dwellings of the children of Israel until the Messiah comes, these sorts of things. That's what, prophetically, this was speaking to. But she went up there, a sukkah, after this, on the Feast of Sukkot, after this war, and she noticed a group of young reservists who had decorated around the edge of their tank, they had built a, a temporary dwelling, a sukkah, and they were praying around their tank it's kind of like a contradiction in terms almost one, the celebration of the feast of the millennium, but what it will be but yet they having to do it around a tank at the same time, so it's kind of a, a kind of graphic illustration that the promise is not yet fulfilled You know, when we know this, because we're not in the millennium yet but she went over to them uh, she talked with them and then one of them asked a question to her, and the question that was asked to her was this, one young reserve soldier, I think he was 19 years old He said, my father was killed in the war of 48, and we won. He said, my uncle was killed in the war of 56, and we won. And my brother lost an arm in the 67 war, and we won. And last week, I lost my best friend over there. And we're going to win. But is all our sacrifice worthwhile, Golda? And it's recorded that she stood there for a long time, staring blankly, and then she stepped close to the young man. And this is how she answered that soldier that day. And she said, I weep for your loss just as I grieve for all the dead. I lie awake at night thinking of them. And I must tell you, in all honesty, were our sacrifices for ourselves alone, then perhaps you are right. I'm not at all sure they would be worthwhile. But if they are for the survival of the whole Jewish people, then I believe with all my heart that any sacrifice is worthwhile. You see, a verse that you will find on many monuments around the state of Israel is a verse from the book of Psalms, 126, verses 5 and 6, and it says this, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And this is, we understand this principle, don't we? Sometimes we are required to make very difficult choices in the present because they will have beneficial impact in the future. And it may be something that we don't even get to see. You see, we understand this because many of the freedoms that we have today were earned by people sacrificing in the past. I think of the freedom to stand here and teach the Bible, the fact that I can actually hold a Bible in my hand, the fact that we can go out onto the streets and preach the Gospel. These were freedoms that we take for granted. But go back a few hundred years, and I I taught on this a while back, didn't I? People were dying for that freedom. And this is the principle here. They were sowing in tears that we would reap with shouts of joy. And this is one thing you'll always find emphasised in the Bible. It's not an individual-looking book. You know, our culture in the West particularly was so individual-focused. And many times it's detrimental to our own well-being. It damages us. It just, it just, it just does. But from the body of Christ's perspective and from this thing, we're a, a living, organic organ basically, the body of Christ attached to the head being brought into perfection until one day we'll be with him but until then we sow and we reap and we know don't we, from many times we are called to suffer hardship 2 Timothy 2.3 and it says as a good soldier of Christ Jesus that's one of the callings that we have to suffer hardship we sow the seed of the gospel, Matthew 13 the famous parable that's, what, that's what's going on in the world and quite often we know that it may be someone else who harvests that. It might not even be in our lifetimes. It says in Galatians 6.9 that we are not to lose heart in doing good, not to grow weary. For in due time we reap if we do not grow weary. Okay, we're not to lose heart in doing that. There's a story in the Talmud, Jewish writings, early Jewish writings. It talks about a sage called Honey Miguel. And he was troubled at the meaning of Psalm 126 that I just read. And it narrates that one day he was journeying on a road and he saw a man planting a tree. And he said, how long does it take for this tree to bear fruit? And the man replied, 70 years. And he further asked him, are you certain that you will live for another 70 years? And the man replied, well, I found ready-grown trees in the world when I came, as my forefathers planted these for me, so I too will plant these for my children so that they may have the same experience. And I like that because it reminds us, it's a good time for us to ask ourselves now, what seeds are we planting in our own lives? Are we planting them solely for ourselves, or are we planting them for the gospel? Are we planting them for the kingdom purposes? Do we have just our own well-being in mind, or do we have those who will come beneath us? Are we sowing to the flesh or to the spirit? And this is an interesting one, I guess. Uh, you know, continual confusion people have that things are not going well, or they're struggling with an issue. But when you trace what they've been doing, they've been sowing in the flesh, and they will reap in the flesh for those issues. And this is a, a principle of the Christian life that it's a hard lesson for us all to learn. We probably learn it many, many times over the years. But we need to sow to the spirit. Another one are we passing on the knowledge of God to the next generation? This is such an important lesson in the scriptures. The elders are commanded to make sure that the younger generation have the knowledge of God or else, What we, you know, we've been studying the book of Joshua going into the next one now, you'll see that within one generation the people who came in under Joshua did not pass on the knowledge of what God has done and within one generation they were gone. You know, That is a challenge for us today. What we have the message of the gospel, the oracles of God, is the most important thing in the world. Okay, there is nothing else that can compare with it because of the one it focuses on, the rock of Israel. If, he, if what we claim about God is true, that he made the universe, he made it for us to be inhabited, that we will spend eternity with him if, if only we'll deal with this problem that we have in our own lives, the very reason he sent his son to die for us, if that is all true, then nothing else really matters. Because ultimately, only what is sown in the Spirit, only what is done in faith, will last into eternity. That's the importance that we have. I'll just end by reading you a long piece of Scripture from 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is from the Davidic covenant, after God makes that promise that he will have the horn of David, basically. And it kind of ties in with what we've been talking about. He says this, For this reason you are great, O Lord God, and there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to what we have heard with our ears. And what nation on earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make a name for himself, and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods? You have established for yourself your people as your own people forever, And you, O Lord, have become their God. Now therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it and do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever. And that's really the whole key to understanding this. It's not about Israel. The Bible says in many ways that he didn't choose you because you were greater or more numerous than any people. In fact, he chose you because you're quite bad. The reason he did it was because when he attaches his promise to something, his name is tied up in that. And that's why we see the history being fulfilled exactly as it was predicted in his word. Because by doing that, it gives his name glory because he is the sovereign of the universe. And no one else can do that. In the book of Isaiah, we see him make a challenge to these Israelites who had gone after false gods. And he says, if you can come up with another way, present your case with me to explain how I can predict world history. And obviously it's a rhetorical question, he knows they can't answer it. And he goes on to explain that he has done these things, he has laid out history in advance, so that you may know that I am God and you will turn to me and be saved. And that is exactly the same reason that we have with Jesus. Not just the nation of Israel fulfilled prophecies, but Jesus came to fulfill prophecies. Hundreds of them. So that we would know that he is the Messiah of Israel. He goes on to say, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of your servant David be established. Now, Lord, O God, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. So, what is the continuing story of Israel? It's those last words there. Quite simply, Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth. This is the message that we take from Israel, that God's word is true and that he calls us into relationship with the rock of Israel, he calls us to follow him, submit to him and understand who he is as he has revealed himself in scripture and not to make him who we want to be by the imaginations of our own mind because when we do that we're putting our trust in a false god, in a false wall and those walls will be destroyed at some point, it is the God of Israel who we trust. I'll end with a quote by J.I. Packer from his famous book, Knowing God. He says, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we have in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? To know God. And what is the best thing in this life? To know God. The Rock of Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for, for your word, for your sovereign hand in history. And I would pray now that you would just use uh, things that have been said this morning to encourage us and edify us and help us to live out what you have asked us to do, Lord, in your word, and that you would get the glory, Father. In Jesus' name and for his sake, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.